Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. And here we are, a new week, a new episode. This is episode four already of the Leadership Window podcast. And so we've been talking about the special nature of each episode. First episode was special because it was the first episode. Second episode was special because we had our first guest. The third episode was special because we had our first in-studio guest. Today is special because we have our first social sector leader on the line and uh her name is molly talbot metz she is the mary black foundation's fourth president or ceo since it was founded in 1996 she joined the foundation in 2001 as its first program officer became the director of programs in 2007 she was named vice president of programs in 2013 so she's you can you see a pattern here her leadership has just continued to elevate prior to joining the foundation molly worked on local and statewide efforts to reduce teen pregnancy So she's got a lot of expertise in that arena, and it's related to her work at the foundation. Molly has a Master of Public Health degree from the University of South Carolina and a Bachelor of Science degree in Health Education from the State University of New York at Cortland. Molly and her husband are natives of Syracuse, New York, and have lived in Spartanburg, South Carolina since 1999. They have two children. And Molly is very actively engaged and involved in her community there in Spartanburg. She serves on a number of boards, uh, the Northside Development Corporation, Spartanburg Academic Movement, the Spartanburg Community Indicators Project. She has served as board chair for the South Carolina Campaign to Prevent Teen Pregnancy, which is now called Fact Forward, and Spartanburg Housing Authority. She co-chaired the design committee and fundraising campaign to build the Franklin School, which is a national model in early childhood development, another key area of her current foundation, uh, early childhood development, care, and education. Molly's a current member of the Spartanburg Downtown Rotary Club and the South Carolina Grant Makers Network. She is a fantastic leader, and she's a coaching partner with me. In other words, as you listen to to this introduction, um, Molly is a leader. So, uh, Molly, I am absolutely thrilled and honored to have you on uh, the leadership window. So thanks for joining us. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you and be part of the leadership window. Well, me too. And I'm particularly excited about this conversation because, you know, as as our artificially intelligent Rosie announced at the beginning of the show, this is about leadership through a social sector lens. So in our inaugural episode, we talked about the fact that we were going to have social sector leader practitioners on this program because while this is a show about leadership, there are a unique set of challenges and nuances of leading in the nonprofit sector. And um, many of the of our board members in the nonprofits, they lead in the corporate sector. And sometimes there's a challenge to really understand the nuances of what it means to lead in the nonprofit sector. I said in the opening episode that if you if for, for corporate leaders who really want to understand the difference, try leading people who aren't getting paid to be led. for one thing. So that's a starting point. But um, I'm excited to talk with you about your perspective on leadership, particularly as you've sort of moved up. I mean, you've just been continually growing and evolving and developing to the place where now you're not just a leader of an organization, but you are truly a community leader. So I'm excited to talk about this stuff. And I guess I would start by just saying, um, tell us a little bit about the Mary Black Foundation. Just by name, people wouldn't know what that is. Who are you? Where does that come from? What's the bent? Sure. So the Mary Black Foundation is a private grant-making organization in Spartanburg, South Carolina. We were formed in 1986 
as the fundraising arm for the Mary Black Memorial Hospital. But we reconfigured in 1996 when that hospital was sold to a for-profit company. So we're what is sometimes referred to as a health legacy foundation or conversion foundation um, because we uh, received the assets from the sale of that hospital back in 1996, about $63 million at the time. And we invest those resources and make grants based on investment returns. Our mission is geographically focused on Spartanburg County and we really are here to invest in people and communities to improve health, wellness, and success. Um, so I, just a couple of quick things about foundations like yours. I've got a little bit of experience working with foundations like yours or what I, what I would call, I don't know if this term is right, but hospital conversion foundations where, uh, yeah, where, where a nonprofit hospital gets sold and, and creates this foundation. And I find that in communities, particularly like Spartanburg, and I'm familiar with, with a really, um, influential foundation up in Danville, Virginia, where I was with United Way there, these regional foundations that are formed out of hospitals have significant assets. I mean, you, you carry a, um, you carry a real set of, of a significant amount of financial resources in a place like Spartanburg County. And with that comes not only tremendous opportunity, but tremendous responsibility. Um, even though you're not having to go out and raise money like a United way would have to, um, there's a great responsibility of stewarding those kinds of resources. So when you took, let's, let's have our first leadership conversation here. When you took the reins as the CEO, how did that feel? I mean, what, how much, how, what was, what was the balance between, Hey, this is an amazing opportunity and oh my gosh, the weight of the world's on my shoulders. Cause it's a big responsibility to steward those kinds of resources in a community that is really dependent upon you making good decisions with those. It is. Um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, having joined the foundation in 2001 as a program officer, I had the opportunity to really develop that position and um, make it my own. And obviously I was working mostly on the program side. And so I didn't um, think as much about the investment side of the foundation. And so when I stepped from the program side of the work into the role of CEO, I really had to think more about not only the investment side, but how the two work together, how we can leverage our assets uh, for greater good in the community. We have about, give or take, you know, $78 million in assets right now. And we grant about two and a half to $3 million a year back into Spartanburg County. And, and you're right, that's a significant amount of resources, but we all know that it's not enough to really address some of the the complex challenges of health and wellness in a community. So we have to be very strategic about where we want to invest our resources. Um, you, you mentioned that as a private foundation, we don't have to do any fundraising, which is, is terrific for us because we can focus our efforts, our strategy around where we think we're going to have the, the greatest impact and not worry as much about um, generating revenue each year and not necessarily trying to be all things to all people. We, we've been able to really prioritize um, our focus areas, which um, for the foundation are early childhood development and healthy eating and active living. So there lots of leadership tenants now that I want to unpack just hearing you say those things. And the first is that you mentioned not being the, the funds that you have as significant as they are, they're not sufficient to meet all the needs that are out there. Certainly not by yourself. So the Mary black foundation works in collaboration and cooperation with lots of other entities. You're part of a, of a joint funding group. You're part of a sort of an ecosystem in a community trying to address early childhood education, healthy living, you know, everything from teen pregnancy to affordable housing. And you don't do that by yourself. So um, what would you, how would you describe the challenge of being that collaborative leader? How do you know when to step out and be in the front? 
versus bring leadership to the table from the side or maybe even from behind as a lot of people are working on some of the same things that you're working on? How does how does collaboration and the art of collaboration fit into your leadership model? Yeah, so I think um, I do think of myself as a collaborative leader. I think my leadership style is very much dependent on relationships. Um, and so, you know, because I have been a part of the foundation for a long time, I have, I have years and years of relationships with people in the community, whether that's with other funders in the community, whether it's with policymakers, whether it's with our grantee partners. Um, I think that developing authentic and trusting relationships is really important as you try to do collaborative work. Um, I, I strongly believe that you can't do the kind of work we want to do, significant community change uh, of complex issues without collaboration. You can't do that work alone. Um, but it is oftentimes the coalition work can be frustrating. It can be really messy. You can feel sometimes like you're, you know, you're taking one step forward, two steps back. Um, but without doing the work hand in hand as a community, I don't believe you, you're ever going to really make much impact. Really well said. And I think speaks volumes of why your board would choose you to be the next CEO of the Mary Black Foundation, because you, you really just said it. It's about relationships. When you're in, when you're doing collaborative leadership, you did not just say, well, it's about, you know, I got to design really good, great models that persuade people to come along with my way of thinking, or I have to be, you know, this great persuasive public speaker and rally all the troops. You said I, it's about relationships. And when you have relationships, you build trust. And when you build trust, you can work together. So I appreciate that you're really digging deep immediately into the, the the real depth of leadership, which is about the people and the relationships you have with people as much as the models are important. And actually we're going to talk a little bit about your model, but uh, I really appreciate that your focus just now on, on the term relationship and having worked with you, I, you are a, a collaborative leader or a, a facilitative leader. I might call it where you're, you're not, you know, just sort of the Pied Piper you are, you are really there to lead from all directions and bring influence to the table. So I really appreciate that. I'd like to hear, uh, you know, you, you have much like a lot of our listeners, you became the CEO from inside the organization and some people hire CEOs from outside the organization, but you came from within and there's a couple of challenges that I'd like to see how you sort of approached one is there's always a challenge of now being the leader of the people that you were once coworker with or, or peer and just speaking purely on the hierarchy of the org chart, of course. But when you, when you suddenly become the CEO and you're leading the people that you've been working alongside with, there's a challenge to that. I'd love to hear you talk about how you've handled that. The second is you replaced a, a, a successful CEO. You replaced someone who had a, strong reputation and had done a good job and brought the, brought the foundation to where it was. So now you've got to formulate your own point of view on leadership and your own sort of, you know, teachable theory of change and, and homogenize the organization to fit your style. So those are both challenges that a lot of leaders face, particularly in the nonprofit sector. How have you gone about addressing those? Um, two really good questions. I think, um, you know, first, working with our team, I think um, I had been very intentional the last few years of um, the previous CEO's role here to try to learn as much as I could from her um, and to try to put myself into uh, opportunities within the organization to, uh, to, to have more leadership um, responsibilities so while, um, you know, sort of I had my eyes on the opportunity ahead, I was really trying to prepare myself for it. So um, 
you know, I think for several years I had been thinking about how I would step into this role and what I might do if I had that opportunity to lead the organization. Um, I do think um, sort of going back to relationships, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one relationships with our team members here are really important to me. Um, we, we prioritize um, professional development here, and that includes not just um, what you might think of as traditional learning and professional development, but also team building activities. So we do a couple times a year some uh, fun things as a team to get to know each other better and to get to um, just value each other as individuals and not just coworkers. Um, but I also set aside time each month and do one-on-one -on -one coaching with each of my team members. And so that gives us an opportunity to talk about um, where we are with our strategic plan, successes, challenges, um, gives an opportunity for me to ask how I can better support them and what they need from me. Um, and I think that has helped um, to develop a really good rapport among the team. I think one of my challenges in moving into the CEO, CEO role from within the organization was growing my capacity to work directly with the board. Um, so of course, in my almost 20 years at the foundation, I had worked with the board, uh, but in different capacities. And I always had that uh, buffer of the CEO between me and the board. And so um, I think that was probably my greatest has been and continues to be my greatest leadership challenge um, is just working with a board. Um, we have 13 board members and um, I do try to find times to meet with them individually as well um, so that I can hear from them, you know, what they're thinking about um, our work and their, their views on the work that we're doing in the community and to just build some trust and relationship with each of them individually. I'm just loving listening to this because it just keeps coming back around to relationships. I mean, you keep saying it and you have, that has been, that's been your approach. You know, how do you lead people that you've been working alongside? You build the relationship, you carve out intentional time to, um, to engage with each other at a personal level. I, I think you've, I think you've really done that. You said something I don't want to let slip though in the beginning, which you talked about, you thought about this role before you took it. I think you said for several years before you became the CEO, you thought about that role and what it might take. Did I hear you right on that? Yes. Yes. Um, so uh, when Philip Belcher left, I actually served as the interim for about 10 months before Kathy Dunleavy was hired. And I, I, thought about the role when Philip announced his his departure and thought about whether or not I would want to take that role. And it just did not feel right to me. It didn't feel like the right time in my life. I didn't feel as if I was fully prepared to take on the leadership role here. Um, but I, I did think the opportunity to serve as an interim would be a great experience for me. It would give me an opportunity to be in the role temporarily and see how it felt, see if it was something I thought I might want to work towards. Um, and it, you know, it would just be a great um, opportunity for the board to see me in that way as well. And so I took that opportunity um, and I, I found that I really did enjoy it. And I found that, um, you know, while I felt like I definitely had some areas to that I could um, develop over the next few years, it was, um, it was not something that, you know, maybe when I thought of it, it seemed really scary, but it wasn't as scary as I thought it might be. Mm. Um, and I, I have to say, to her credit, Kathy Dunleavy is a terrific leader and has been a, a really wonderful mentor to me. And she uh, was intentional about coaching me and preparing me for a role that she thought I should take. Uh, when she retired. And that's a powerful, powerful element of leadership that a lot of leaders forget once they're in that role, they sometimes forget how they got there and what it took, you know, the leaders in their lives that coached them and supported them and stretched them, gave them opportunities to lead. And then when you're the leader, you got to remember, okay, now I have people I get to do that for and should do that for. 
And so that's a really great leadership tenant. But what I loved about the fact that you had thought about this and, and even served as the interim is, you know, we were talking with um, Ron Harvey was on the program last week from Global Core um, Strategies and Consulting, and he's got a military background. And he talked about how the military prepares you for a role one to two years out or one to two position ranks out. They start preparing you well in advance for your next levels. They don't want to just throw you into, okay, here's your next role or your next um, rank or leadership position without knowing you, you really are ready for it. And um, so I'm curious though, what, what, what would you say has changed other than you got to sort of feel it out as an interim, what else would you say changed for you from that time of this isn't the right time and I'm not ready to, yeah, I think I'm ready now. What changed? I think some of it was just building my confidence as a leader, um, understanding what my, my strengths are, um, and knowing, recognizing that people lead in different ways, um, and that I'm comfortable leading as me. Um, you know, you mentioned Kathy is a dynamic leader. Um, I'm not Kathy, but I think I am a very good leader. We're, we're different. And I think I've just gotten comfortable with the fact that I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. I can't do everything well, but I do have strengths that I bring to the table and I'm, I'm more confident in those now than I was um, previously. That, that's great. And you're not Kathy. I mean, that, right. and that's, and, and, uh, you know, they wouldn't want that. Not because, not because Kathy wasn't great, but because every leader, when you, when you take over an organization, it's, it's not about what has been and it's not about what is, it's about what's next. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does take a shift in leadership style. And, um, this is one of the tenets of leadership for me is that there's not a one size, there's not, there's not one right answer. There, there are benefits and advantages to every style of leadership. So I, I appreciate that. Um, let's talk, I do want to frame a little bit about the work of the Mary Black Foundation for reference for our listeners. And then I want to talk about the leadership uh, aspect of it. So if you could, uh, how would you describe the core work of the Mary Black Foundation? Like, you know, thinking about your strategic plan, um, which I'm pretty familiar with. Uh, how would you, you know, like moving forward over the next three years or so, what is the Mary Black Foundation working on if you were to sum it up? Sure. So um, I mentioned our mission around health, wellness, and success. And we're really focused over the next three years on advancing health equity, expanding impact investments, and strategic grant making for impact. And so, you know, what that meant for us in terms of how we operationalize that, um, health equity is something that we needed to define for ourselves um, and something that we needed to be able to have a, a, a framework or a, a visual point of view that we could use both internally um, as we were planning our work, but also externally as we think about that role as a convener and our ability to help um, bring along other community partners with us to, to advance health equity. That is something that we feel um, we cannot do alone. Um, and so we have to use not only our grant making and maybe some impact investments, but our um, our ability to convene partners and uh, elevate the work such that it can get done uh, by a collaborative of people. And for any of our listeners wondering, you know, you, we've heard the term equity a lot lately as we should um, 2020 has elevated a lot of conversations around diversity and inclusion and around equity and particularly race equity. Um, but there's also this, you know, people still wonder, well, equality, I hear equality and then I hear equity. Are they the same thing? You know, diversity and inclusion, those are not the same thing. Talk about, when you say health equity for, for, for the people who are not in that arena, what does that even mean? Well, for us, what we have landed on is that health equity exists when all people have access to opportunities and resources to thrive. We don't think that anyone should be limited 
in achieving health and wellness because of who they are or where they live. But when we look at data, we know that that is the reality. We see significant disparities in data um, based on race and ethnicity or geography, um, even, even within neighborhoods in our communities. Um, so we have not, we know, we know we have not yet achieved health equity. So I've seen some of your data and um, it's very powerful because it demonstrates, I mean, you can, you can look at one page and see a simple line graph that shows inequity. Can you give an example maybe of, of some of that data? Like what, what is one example of, for example, a gap that exists between um, uh, particularly the one I'm thinking of was the, the third grade reading level uh, between um, white students in Spartanburg County and uh, um, the African-American students. Yes. Um, yeah, so we, we think it's really important to disaggregate data by race and ethnicity because when you just are looking at even a trend line for an entire population, it can oftentimes mask those disparities. So a lot of times people will point to the third grade reading um, percent of students reading on grade level by third grade. Um, and you might just look at the total population of students and, and consider that data point. Um, but when you disaggregate it by, by race and ethnicity, you can see in Spartanburg County, for example, 58.2% um, of white third graders are reading on grade level compared to 21.8% of black students in third grade and 16% of Hispanic students in third grade. And that comes from the Department of Education's SD Ready testing. Um, but that should um, cause a staff and a board to ask why and to, to ask questions about that data and to um, consider what investments, interventions, services, policy changes are needed to close that gap. Of course, we wanna see the percent of students reading on grade level increase for all, but we also wanna see the, them increase more among uh, black and Hispanic youth. So there, there's a lot of clarity in that and I've watched that in action. So leadership involves um, making the case and raising the, what I think Cotter and others have called the burning platform. You know what leaders, leaders sometimes have the tough job of saying, Hey, we got a problem here and illuminating it and showing people why your work is important. And when people can understand the why, then they get more excited about the what. So I watched this recently at one of your board retreats where you as the leader and your staff present this data vis very visually, very stark. And you, you made exactly that case. You said, look, when you disaggregate the data, it tells you, it tells you at a deeper level, something's going on. Now our next, our next thing is to figure out why, why does this gap exist? Um, and that's, you know, digging deeper, but as you illuminated the need, I watched your board dig in and engage. And a lot of boards have difficulty digging in and engaging a lot of boards. It's crickets around the room when you try to talk about strategy, but when you illuminate something like this, the engagement just sort of draws out of them. So I, I just, I think that data and your role as a leader in not only collecting that important data, but the ability to be able to talk about it and make the case, just like you're, you're doing right now. That's a big part of leadership, is it not? It is, and I would just add to that as a funder, I think we have an additional leadership role in helping the nonprofit mm -hmm. sector look at data this way as well. Um, so we are often um, encouraging our grantee partners to look at their data um, disaggregated and to, to ask themselves those questions and, and how are their programs and services and work uh, along systems and policies addressing some of these disparities that we have. And to be honest, sometimes when we have those, those conversations, it's the first time one of our nonprofit partners have thought about it. Um, so I think we play a role in um, continuing to remind and, 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 and reinforce the importance of it. Oh, I love it because now we're talking about not only the individual leader or an individual leader, but the organization as a leadership entity. 
So how do you, what, what's your role as the CEO or what's the organization's role in creating a culture of leadership where the, where the board members lead and your staff leads? And as an organization, the community sees you as a leadership entity. How do you, how do you massage that and make that happen? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a, unfortunately there is a imbalance in power when you talk about funders and nonprofits and having come to the Mary Black Foundation from the nonprofit world, I do have a deep appreciation for the power dynamics between funders and grantees. And, and we work really hard. Um, it's important to me that we create a culture here at the foundation where we try our best to, um, minimize that dynamic um, and for our grantees to see us as their partner and not, you know, the, the funder that's going mm -hmm. to, um, you know, withhold funding if they don't do as, you know, as we want. Um, and so we work really hard to try to walk the line of, you know, sort of telling grantee partners what they must do uh, versus, uh, uh, I, I think leading by example, and that's really where we try to um, play our leadership role is, is, you know, we are doing this work alongside our partners. So for example, we offer, um, offered some uh, training, a training series on race, equity, and inclusion. And we participated, some of our board members participated, our staff participated alongside the grantees um, and th their staff and their board. And, and we were very clear with them that, you know, we, we're learning with you. Um, and so I think that leading by example is one way that we can play that role as a community leader. Mm. Wow. What a, what a great, what a great uh, approach to it. Um, and I didn't even expect you to go there. You know, I, I was thinking more along the lines of your staff and your board, you went straight to, the people that you're, you're granting funds to. And again, you know, my listeners know I have a United way background and it was really the same thing. United way has a reputation for being sort of, you know, I got my thumb on you cause I'm giving you money hoops to jump through and, and things like that. And I'm not bad mouthing United way. There's a lot of reasons why there are standards and things that you got to follow. But the challenge has been the successful United ways have been the ones who have said, Hey, we're like, let's live our name United. We're, we're actually doing this together. So the idea that you're providing space for your grantees to lead upward and across and down that you're actually taking out the directional leadership and you're saying, Hey, together we're a community. How do we do this? Here's our role. We have mm -hmm. resources. Your role is tough as a, as a nonprofit because you've got to go do the work in the trenches, but we all have a role and let's lead through this together. So there's that collaborative leadership of yours again. <laughs> So I love it. Um, let's talk about metrics for a minute again, because, um, well, it, for one, it's a, a big um, area of interest to me. Um, in, in the nonprofit world, we have sort of a double bottom line, right? We have, to, we have to maintain financial health. And while we're not in it for profit, we really have to make a profit. We have to bring in more than we spend. And then we also have that other part of the bottom line, which is, oh, yeah, we have this accountability to actually accomplish our mission because the IRS gives us tax exempt status, et cetera. And because the community, you know, we're stewards of their resources and we have to perform on this mission. And uh, one of the reasons, quite honestly, other than just your authentic leadership that I just love talking uh, with and learning from is you all have created a model that's holding yourself accountable now. Because now that you've held it up, it's like, mm, okay, mm, we got to go do this. And how do we measure it? Can you talk a little bit about how you're, and I know you're not done with it. You're actually in the middle of still creating a metric model, but you're big on measuring what matters. And without our listeners having a visual in front of them, which we're fortunate to have, you know, this Venn diagram and stuff that you've got around the, your areas. How are you going about saying, okay, here's what we're going to measure against our mission to know that we're actually accomplishing our mission, these are the kinds of things we're actually going to measure. How's your organization going about setting that up? Yes, yeah, so we have developed what we're calling the health equity framework. And if any of your listeners are interested in seeing it, they can 
find it on our website, which is mirrorblackfoundation.org under health equity. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put it in the episode on the episode page and make sure there's a link to that. Terrific. And this is something that really our team developed um, based on our strategic driver around advancing health equity. We spent uh, several months researching other communities, other national leaders, uh, work around health equity and what that really means for a community. And after months of that research, our team put together uh, this framework. And we are very clear to say that um, this is not something that the Mary Black Foundation can achieve alone, uh, but this is what we believe Spartanburg needs to have to ensure that it can achieve health equity. And really it's, it's um, three uh, areas, um, accessible, affordable, and culturally relevant healthcare, safe and supportive neighborhoods, and high quality education and employment. And of course there are more specific uh, benchmarks or indicators underneath each of those high level areas. But those are the three things that we, we believe are essential to be able to achieve health equity in a community. Can I pause right there? Sure. Because I think just saying those three things um, are illuminating for probably a lot of our listeners. When you say health equity, when you say the word health, I'm thinking about health. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I'm thinking about, you know, medical care, health care, you know, maybe wellness. But you said education and healthcare and safe and supportive neighborhoods. I'm like, wait, and those, how do those have to do with health? So I think a part, a big part of setting this framework up is that it educates people to say health is a lot of things. And the, the thing we call them, the determinants of health, the things that affect our health is what you're holding up. And I just wanted to pause on that because you mentioned these three things that don't quite sound like what a lot of people conjure in their minds when they hear the word health. Well, thank you for pointing that out because really this has been a journey that we have been on for several years now. Um, And so, you know, sometimes I forget that not everybody's been on the journey with us the whole time, but you're right. Um, To achieve health, we have to have um, many aspects of community in place um, because health is determined by so much of where we live, what we have access to, the, the resources and the education that we can um, access. So it really is important for us to be able to use this framework, as you said, not only something that helps drive our internal work and our metrics, but also helps to educate the community of how they can play a role in achieving health equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, drawing them in, engaging them, not just top down. Mm-hmm. Good. So each of these three areas then have a set of their own metrics. Yes. And this is where, as you said, we're, we're in this work now. Um, you know, we have lots of indicators that we can point to around the, the first part of our mission that invest in people and communities. We track that really well. We know, you know how many organizations we're funding at what level, how many grants, how many grant consultations, those kinds of things are easy for us to measure. But that, how do we measure for improved health, wellness, and success? That's the area where we're really pushing ourselves to develop some more metrics. Um, and, and we have some data that we've been tracking. I mentioned the third grade reading. We've also been tracking teen births and birth outcomes, kindergarten readiness, childhood obesity, and physical activities, another Um, But we feel like we could be clearer about the data that we're trying to move. And that's important to us because we can align our grant making and our community leadership around the things that we think will have the greatest impact on the data. So if we're not putting that data front and center um, with all of our decision making, then we don't believe we will be as impactful. So you have those business indicators, how much revenue are we bringing in through our investments? How many, how many grants are we doling out? How many, you know, what's our employee retention? Um, I mean, all kinds of key performance indicators that any business would measure. Then you have on top of it, the complexity of these social change metrics. Uh, Can you give me an example of some of the specific metrics that you are either looking at or are considering 
measuring and looking at so that people know what, what do we mean? What kinds of things are we talking about measuring here? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll just say before saying that too, I think one of the challenges that we face and I think is common in the nonprofit sector is because we are looking to change these big community population level uh, issues, it's really hard to know where your your intervention fits in because you, you're not going to necessarily right. be able to, to show causation. Mm -hmm. But what we're looking to be able to at least show is our contribution to those um, those kinds of things. So, you know, because we are interested in early childhood development, uh, we're looking at measuring and tracking low birth weight data uh, for children in Spartan County, infant mortality rates um, are other things that we, we are looking to measure. Um, in our healthy eating and active living work, we're looking at um, adult prevalence of diabetes and we're looking at um, childhood obesity data that's collected in our schools. So we have a number of different metrics under each of those areas of the health equity framework um, that we are considering tracking. Well, you, um, you, you, I love what you just said about attribution. This is a big, this is a big challenge in the nonprofit sector is we put these strategies against big issues in our community and okay. Low birth weight. Well, that's one thing. And you're the people that the organizations maybe that you might fund that are working on that, they're addressing part of it. They're hitting a part of the population. They're throwing some strategies at it. But there are all kinds of factors that play into a child's birth weight. <laughs> yeah, there's so many things that, that make that happen. Or for organizations that talk about um, in your in your high quality education and employment, K-12 education and then into employment, career readiness, job training. Boy, it's not just about a program that, you know, it's not a math tutorial program and boom, you're ready for life that's one strategy, um, people's home lives and their socioeconomic conditions and their, the mentors they have in their lives and their school experience and their health. And there are so many things play into that, that you can't just say we can do this by ourselves. So you're a part of an ecosystem of changing, uh, or improving health equity in your community. And again, we're back to how difficult that is as, as a leader or through a leadership lens, how difficult that is to get an entire community to first of all, even understand that, Oh, we're a part of that system. So, yeah. um, so it's, it's holding up the mirror of the community and saying, here's the reality. That's when you say we're tracking low birth weight and, you know, teen pregnancy and early school readiness, all that, you're not just tracking it. You're trying to improve it. So it's about, it's about moving that, that metric, whatever it is in a good direction what, I mean, how do you do that? You're a single organization. I mean, we've talked about it some, but the leadership challenge of bringing an entire system together to work together seems insurmountable. Does it not? I mean, it sometimes it does. And yet when it works, it really works. It does sometimes seem, um, you know, impossible to achieve, um, but we have achieved it at times. Um, Spartanburg has been working together as a community collaborative since 2007, really, around teen pregnancy prevention. And so I think um, we have an example that we've been able to point to, especially when things get frustrating, when it feels like you're not making any progress. It's really nice to be able to say, but, but look at how we were able to do this together. Look at how we were able to engage school systems and the mm -hmm. faith community and medical providers and nonprofit organizations all of one around one common goal. Um, and we used data. We used um, you know, the data to drive our decisions about what kind of interventions and where they should be um, focused. And we used collaboration, um, bringing together a variety of different people around one issue. And so um, it can be done. It's not easy. It's hard to know sometimes where you fit in. Um, you know, you mentioned this ecosystem. And I think part of the leadership challenge is knowing sort of the assets in the community 
and where your organization can best fit in, you know, and sometimes it's where nobody else is working, but sometimes it's where the momentum is. Where there's where already there's traction. Momentum. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That makes good sense. Uh, that makes a lot of good sense. So, Boy, I mean, we could we could go on and on about this. I don't I don't want to necessarily make this conversation about health equity in your work, um, although it's critical and it's important. But just again, the leadership and what a great leadership principle you just shared about holding up a history of success. Uh, that's really important to reach back. Vision vision is not only moving forward. Sometimes we have to paint a picture of what we've already done for people to go. Yeah, you're right. We actually are making progress. We actually did do something over here. If we did it over here, we can do it over there, perhaps. And so I love that, that um, holding up successes is really important because success breeds success and it creates momentum. Um, there is a question that I want to ask you that, I, that uh, I'm asking all of the guests on this program. And again, I, I would love to we'll have to have you back on the program later on when you've, you know, you're at the next level of measuring some of this data, for example, and we can talk about more of the, some of the things that you've learned about leadership. Um, what I'd love to know about you, you really are a unique, authentic leader and you really are a collaborative leader. Who were the leaders in your early life or career that has, that you would say have kind of helped shape your view of leadership and, and what made them great leaders? Who were some of those people? Well, I already mentioned Kathy Dunleavy, of course, she is a tremendous leader in Spartanburg. And, um, you know, I've, I've only had four bosses in my 20 plus years of a professional career. <laughs> and it, it's, I was, I've been very lucky that it seems to, to be that I've had the type of leader that I've needed at the right time. Um, and I've, I've, they've each impacted me, um, in different ways. My very first boss was Joy Campbell, who was the director of the South Carolina campaign to prevent teen pregnancy. And I first met her by phone when I was um, finishing up my undergraduate. And I was looking for a um, graduate assistantship when I was coming to South Carolina. And um, it was uh, really interesting to talk with her on the phone. And I will never forget when she was talking to me about um, the teen pregnancy prevention work in the state. And I, I hung up the phone and I thought to myself, boy, she talked a lot about politics and coalitions. And I thought, what in the world does, do politics have to do with teen pregnancy prevention? <laughs> so I certainly had a lot to learn um, as I was coming to South Carolina to do some work with her. And she taught me a lot about the relationship side of, of what we've talked about today and, and how nonprofit work is best done in collaboration. She was a terrific coalition builder and I was uh, really fortunate to be part of her team as she was um, building that statewide coalition. Um, and then I think uh, Philip Belcher here at the foundation before um, Kathy, really taught me the importance of building and supporting a good team, um, taught me the importance of trusting and respecting uh, the team that I'm fortunate enough to lead, um, and how, uh, you know, we all bring our unique assets to the work, but together we, we do that work to advance our mission. So, if, you know, I think all, I believe all people want to be seen, they want to be heard, and they want to be valued, but that, that doesn't change when you walk into the workplace. That's uh, the same, I believe, in a workplace. And so I have worked really hard to create a culture at the foundation where every team member can be themselves. And um, that has really, I think, been a strong influence of Phillips on, on my leadership. That's inspiring. Humans are humans, right? We, we, yeah. we want what we want, whether we're in the workplace or at home, we're just, we're humans, we're people. And uh, uh, you're someone who models that understanding better than most leaders I've met um, is the knowledge that, yeah, it's mission and it's work and it's business, but we're people and, and um, we got to connect at a personal level, respect people as people. You do have an amazing team. Um, I've had the honor of working some with your team as well, your staff and your board. And I mean, just an incredibly high functioning, high caliber 
excellent team of leaders in their own right. And that's challenging to lead <laughs> in your, you know, uh, it's challenging to lead incompetent people, but it sometimes is a challenge to be the leader of the really high competent caliber people as well. It takes a special person to do it. And, um, you are, you're absolutely doing it. Um, Molly, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for the work that you're doing in your community. It is clear that you're doing this with a, with mission and purpose, personal mission, and purpose. And I'm honored to be even a small part of that journey with you. So thank you for the work you do. And, and thank you for um, agreeing to come on the program. And 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 really, I'd, I'd like to go ahead and extend an invitation now for some time down the road to come back and give us an update on your work. I would love to. I always enjoy talking with you, Patrick, and appreciate the invitation. Well, fantastic. This is good. You see, boy, I tell you what, these episodes could just go on and on and on. They've just been fantastic. Um, so we're putting some links uh, to the Mary Black Foundation and uh, uh, in the episode notes. So on the page on our website, just go to jinxperspective.com. That's J-I-N-K-S perspective.com. Click on podcast and we'll see all the show notes and we'll make sure that there's links to these so that you can learn a little bit more. Uh, later this week, we have another individual, another local um, individual, although he's not local anymore. He's in Memphis now, uh, Forrest Alton who is the uh, co-founder and president of uh, 1000 Feathers Consulting, has done some work, I think, with you, Molly, on um, on teen pregnancy. That was kind of his former nonprofit life, and now he's helping nonprofits uh, get better about strategy and leadership. So we've got him. And then uh, later on in the week, we've got Nick Nanton. And Nick is too many things to talk about right now. Uh, but one of the most interesting things about him is that he is a 15-time Emmy award-winning filmmaker, uh, documentary filmmaker, and boy, his stuff is rich, rich, rich. Uh, but he does a lot of other stuff too, and we're going to talk with him about leadership. And then next week, we just keep it going. We got three new guests next week. Thanks for joining us on the Leadership Window. Lead on. <laughs> <laughs>